updates on the Supreme Court. Where are we now? And what does the future hold? Dean Erwin Chimerinsky from the Berkeley School of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, audience. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. Today, we're talking about the current Supreme Court term, which started last year and continues into this year. And, you know, obviously, 2020 saw a lot going on, and the temperature so far, unfortunately, has not cooled down in early 2021. But the Supreme Court still has a lot of important work to do. And to help us sift through all that, we welcome one of my favorite guests of the network, Dean Irwin Chimerinsky, the Jesse H. Choper, Distinguished Professor from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Welcome to the show, sir. It's always wonderful to be with you. Oh, terrific, terrific. So I'm so glad you're here. I haven't talked with you in a while. And, uh, you know, audience, Dean Irwin Chimerinsky is one of my favorite guests because he has this marvelous talent to take very complex topics and sift them down into these really simple but easy to understand bites. It's a gift, sir. And I just love having you on. So thank you so much. You're so kind. My pleasure. So obviously it's been a big year of transitions, Irwin, in terms of the Supreme Court. And, you know, just like every other institution, individual out there, there's just been a lot going on 2020 getting to 2021. And obviously, you know, uh, around the last quarter of last year, uh, we saw the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September and followed up being replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett in October. But beyond that, the whole year they had to change operations and it sort of impacted the way that the, the lawyers and the justices interacted. And you wrote about this on the ABA Journal, sort of the pros and cons of the current operation. And you had uh, some things to say about it just in terms of how it impacts that relationship between justice and lawyer. I'd just like to learn a little bit more about that. The Supreme Court canceled oral arguments last March and April. It was the first time that the court had canceled oral arguments since October 1919 during the Spanish flu. The justices rescheduled 10 of those cases and heard them in May, and the justices did oral arguments by telephone. It's obviously the first time there was ever telephonic arguments in the Supreme Court, and the court continues to hold telephonic oral arguments, all the ones during this term so far by telephone as well. There's been live broadcast of those telephonic oral arguments. Never before had there been live broadcasts. The justices do the questioning in order of seniority with each justice getting allocated a certain number of minutes. There's benefits to this and there's drawbacks to this. I think there's a huge benefit in having live audio broadcasts. Let's all of us hear what the Supreme Court is doing. Used to be you have to get a seat in the courtroom to be able to do that live. And I think that this format having the justice ask questions in order of seniority, brings an orderliness to the procedure. But there's also a disadvantage to it, that there's not the same depth of questioning. It used to be if a justice asked a question, another could ask a follow-up to that. Another could ask a follow-up to that. Now the justice has his or a few minutes, then the next justice may ask us something totally different, and there may be several just down the road before we get back to that earlier topic. So while I like the audio broadcast and hope that will continue, I hope when they go back to their majestic courtroom, they'll resume the more free-for-all style of oral arguments that are so characteristic in the Supreme Court. Do you think that's had a big impact on the decisions? And are we getting a different result or is it just making things more difficult? No one really knows what difference oral argument makes to the outcome 
of appellate cases. And so it's hard to know whether the difference in format alters the outcome. What judges have said to me is there are certain cases where the oral arguments really make a difference. There's obviously a lot of cases that would come out the same way without oral arguments. Whether the format changes the outcome, I'm more skeptical, but it certainly changes the feel of the proceedings, and it certainly changes it from the lawyer's perspective. Well, Erwin, obviously 2020 was uh, quite a year, and uh, we're going to be going in, continuing this session into 2021. But in terms of that, as I understand, as I, I read at a couple different places that most of the cases are added to the docket by about mid or three quarters of the way through January. So given that it's quite a year, given that they might be a little behind schedule, do you think we're going to see some more cases added to the docket uh, a little bit later in the year? Is it too late for that to happen at this point? To put this in some context, the justices grant cases for about half the docket for the following year by the time they go on their summer recess. And then they come back at the end of September and take a number more cases, and they continue to take cases till about mid-January. On Friday, January 8th, the Supreme Court took 14 more cases to be heard this term. Oh, wow. That brings them pretty close to a full docket. I expect they might take some additional cases on January 15th for this term. But after that, anything they take is likely to be heard in fall of 2021 in what will be known as October term 2021. Well, let's catch up with 2020. And so obviously that's the year that we just passed from into 2021. But, you know, just in terms of the most important cases of last year, what were the blockbusters? Just a kind of a brief synopsis before we get into what's coming up on the 2021 docket. There were so many blockbuster cases last term. Let me just give you some of the examples of it. Sure. Um, I think Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia was enormously important. It held that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination, the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. June Medical Services versus Russo, the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that said that in order for a doctor to perform an abortion, the doctor need to have admitting privileges, hospital within 30 miles. Another example, where again, it was a more progressive result, which I think was quite important, Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. This said that President Trump could not rescind the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This protected as many as 800,000 individuals who were undocumented and were brought to the United States before the age of 15. There, of course, were the cases involving presidential immunity from subpoenas for financial records. In Trump versus Vance, the Supreme Court said, the president has no protection, any greater than anybody else, for subpoenas directed as financial institutions for financial records. It involved a grand jury in New York that was investigating President Trump for campaign finance violations in the 2016 presidential election. The claim was that over $100,000 given to Stormy Daniels in hush money to not reveal her sexual relationship with Donald Trump. And the grand jury subpoenaed information from Trump's accountant, Mazars USA. And the Supreme Court said the president isn't entitled to any more immunity than anybody else. There was also Trump versus Mazars that involved congressional committees subpoenaing financial records from institutions that were doing business with President Trump. And the Supreme Court said there has to be a balance of the competing interests of Congress and the president, weighing things like 
need for the information in Congress, whether there's alternative sources of information, how burdensome the subpoena would be. I think the most conservative, most important conservative victories of the term were in the area of religion. In Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, the Supreme Court said, whenever the government gives aid to private secular schools, it is constitutionally required to give that aid to religious schools, unless doing so would violate the Establishment Clause. In one more case, in Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru, the Supreme Court said that a religious school can't be held liable for employment discrimination based on disability, based on age, or anything else for the choices it makes is to be its teachers if those teachers are involved in teaching the faith, the religion. So that's a quick summary of a lot of cases. Yeah, that is. It was uh, quite a year, definitely a lot of important ones, and we had the, the pleasure of covering those on the network. Well, Erwin, as we uh, as we transition into a new presidency here coming up shortly, as I understand from your piece, as I learned uh, for the piece that you wrote for the ABA Journal, it's not unusual for some cases not to get picked up that were perhaps maybe going to be on the docket. And then they uh, because you have a new administration, they become moot for some reason. So do you have a list of obvious ones that might fall into that category? Sometimes after the Supreme Court has granted review in a case, it becomes moot. Sometimes this is because the law changes. A year ago, there was an important Second Amendment case out of New York, but after the Supreme Court granted review, New York repealed the ordinance that was being challenged, and the Supreme Court said the case was moot. I expect that there may be some instances where the Biden administration will change the Trump administration policy and thus likely make the cases moot. As an example, President Trump spent federal dollars to build the border wall without congressional authorization. Lower courts said that this was impermissible. The Supreme Court granted review. I would expect the Biden administration isn't going to spend those funds to the border wall. It's going to argue to the Supreme Court, the case is now moot. The Trump administration changed the policy with regard to asylum. The Trump administration said, if a person came to the United States seeking asylum, and they went through another country, they have to seek asylum in that country first. So if a person, say, from Guatemala went through Mexico to get asylum in the United States, under the Trump policy, they have to first seek asylum in Mexico. I expect the Biden administration will rescind this policy. It's now before the Supreme Court. I think that likely would make it moot. It's common for a new presidential administration to reverse policies including on matters before the Supreme Court. And I think we're going to see a number of instances of that this year. Well, as we look forward, some of the big cases coming up in 2021, and obviously 2021, not off to a great start. Do you think there's going to be some blockbusters regarding free speech, perhaps Section 230, perhaps election laws? Where, where do you think the big cases are going to be centered around? Well, one important case does involve free speech, and the Supreme Court granted review in it on Friday, January 8th. It's Mahoney Area School District versus BL. The issue is, can school officials punish student speech that occurs off campus? And what's the standard if they can? Is the standard whether the speech materially and substantially disrupts school activity? Or is there a different standard? Another example of an important case on the docket this term is California versus Texas. This is about whether or not 
the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. 21 million people are receiving their health insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. In 2012, the court upheld the Affordable Care Act, specifically ruling that the individual mandate was constitutional. The individual mandate is the requirement that a person either purchase health insurance or pay a tax. The court said it was constitutional as an exercise of the taxing power. In December 2017, Congress repealed the penalty for not purchasing health insurance. Texas went to court and said the individual mandate was constitutional because it was a tax. It's no longer a tax. That makes it unconstitutional. And that should make the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. The Trump administration agreed. California and other states intervened to defend the suit. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Tuesday, November 10th. Another important example is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which was argued the day after the election on November 4th. Philadelphia contracts with private social service agencies to do foster care inspections and placements. It requires that the private contractors agree not to discriminate based on race, sex, religion, sexual orientation. The Archdiocese of Philadelphia brought a challenge to this, arguing that its religion required that they discriminate based on sexual orientation, so that it violated its religion to place a child with a same-sex couple. The federal district court ruled in favor of the city of Philadelphia. The United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit agreed, and the Supreme Court granted review. The question is, when does religion provide a basis for an exception to anti-discrimination laws? Well, last question for you, Erwin, and obviously this may be a bit of a loaded one that came up during the election, but since now that the executive branch, the House and the Senate are in the control of the Democrat Party, do you think there's going to be an attempt to pack the court with the time left in this particular Supreme Court term? I think that Congress is likely to pass a bill to significantly expand the size of the federal district courts and federal courts of appeals. It's been 30 years since that happened and many districts and court of appeals are significantly understaffed. I don't think there's gonna be an attempt to expand the size of the Supreme Court. And the reason for that is that the Democrats have only a very slim majority in the Senate, for that matter in the House. In the Senate, it's 50-50 with the vice president breaking ties. We know that the Republicans would filibuster any effort to expand the size of the Supreme Court. And I don't think there's a majority of the Senate I don't think all the Democrats would agree to eliminate the filibuster. So I think at this stage, expanding the size of the lower courts is likely, but I don't see an effort to expand the size of the Supreme Court. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dean Chemerinsky. It was a pleasure having you on. It's always my great pleasure. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this show directly in your favorite podcasting app. And also we'll site make available our sources for this episode on our website, legaltalknetwork.com. So if you want to, you can read them yourself. Lastly, but not leastly, I want to thank my team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LC and crew for their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cloddy. Have a great day, everybody. Um, 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 um.